Good evening, Prof, and thank you for joining us this evening. Hi, Prof, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Can yes, you? yes, yes, I can hear you now. Sorry. Good evening, Prof, and uh, thank you for joining us. Um, <laughs> uh, I was saying to, to uh, the listening audience this evening that uh, we just received a scolding from the president, and I think it's well-deserved, quite frankly, because uh, if you look at the current numbers, uh, we're heading for serious trouble if we're not already in serious trouble. Yeah, you're absolutely right from the point of view that uh, I think there's a lot of frustration that Mm. uh, the prevention measures are really not being taken seriously. And I think the gatherings are part and parcel of sort of driving the large numbers, but also, you know, people just not wearing masks in public. Mm. I think all of that is taking its toll. Uh, Initially, in the early stages of the epidemic, you know, we were still trying to convince people, but we were hoping that by now most people would understand and appreciate that these things are critical if we are to avoid a serious epidemic. So I think uh, that time has come when, you know, we can't just be genteel about it. We've got to get going and get people to take up the protection measures. Now, Prof, I mean, there's so many questions that we have to ask around what is going on at this particular point in time. And I think let's let's start off with this issue of social distancing and masks and, um, you know, people obviously behaving themselves from that particular perspective. Because I, I do agree with you. I mean, just now on social media a couple of days ago, uh, I saw some clown in a one of the uh, chain uh, pharmacies refusing yeah. to put on a mask. Now, it was my own personal experience walked into another pharmacy to pick up masks specifically for our children, you know, uh, get extra masks because they're going back to school and that type of thing. And lo and behold, again, some clown walks in without a mask and thinks because he's at a pharmacy, he can just walk in because he's going to supposedly buy a mask. I mean, what is causing this particular issue from what we understand? I mean, is it just a case of blatant ignorance and people aren't taking this thing seriously? Or are some people just uh, feeling that, you know, I don't know, that they above us all and that they are, you know, in a much better situation that we don't have to, that they don't have to comply because, I don't know, they're healthy and they, they're not ill, supposedly? Yeah, I've sort of seen, you know, three sides to this uh, story. The first is, I mean, there are some people who sort of genuinely don't appreciate the importance of wearing masks and don't feel like, it can really protect them. So those are, you know, the denialists and so on. Then you've got those who are just fed up. They've been in lockdown. They they just feel like this is too restrictive uh, and they have a sort of don't care attitude. And then the third are those who are just openly defiant. I think, you know, as a society, we have to expect that people will differ. That's one of the strengths of our society, that people mm-hmm. differ. But the trouble now is that one person choosing to differ can lead to a hundred infections. It's not just himself or herself. Mm-hmm. If one person, if I don't take the precautions, I'm putting my whole family at risk. I'm putting my work colleagues at risk. I'm putting everybody in the taxi at risk. I'm putting my whole community at risk. So the, the real cost is, really, is high. And mm. the new data we've been seeing that's coming out shows quite clearly that about, you know, they call it the sort of, uh, you know, 80-10 rule, that it's really about 10% of the people, you know, 10 to 20% of the individuals that are responsible 
for about 80% of the infections. So even though you've got large numbers of people who are following the rule, just a small number not following the rule are the ones that are driving the epidemic. And they, they sometimes refer to as super spreaders. Yes. And they super spreaders because they have so many social interactions. They interact with these groups, then they go to the bar, the tavern, and they interact with a whole lot of people there. Then they go to their family. And so they're interacting a lot. They are, they are super spreaders. One person leading to, you know, hundreds of infections. So that's the problem that we're grappling with in our country. And we've, we've got to stop that. Otherwise, we're never going to stop this, you know, 13,000 infections a day. No, I mean, and, and it's really very concerning. I mean, talking about those super spreaders and what's happening in this country at this point in time, I see that we're ninth in the world in terms of the total number of uh, confirmed cases uh, sitting at uh, 2,000, uh, 2, I mean, 264,000 plus uh, with 3,900 deaths. I see that our mortality rate is still extremely low and we'll we'll touch on why that is at this particular point in time. But I mean, it's very concerning, Prof, for us to notice that we've surpassed countries like Italy, Spain and Iran in terms of numbers in that we only uh, second to, say, the United Kingdom. Um, obviously, the US is, is, is way above everyone else at nearly 3.3 million people infected um, with 137,000 deaths. But I mean, it's it's still uh, extremely worrisome that we're sitting at such high numbers. Are we are we in a position to cope with these numbers as it stands right now? Yeah, I mean it is deeply concerning. Um, you know, let's start with the fact that we always knew that the cases were going to go up. In fact, when I took the nation into my confidence on Easter Monday and I explained what we were seeing, mm, mm. I did say something. I said. I have to explain to all of you a bitter truth, you know, and I said it's a difficult truth that I have to tell you. And that is that for as long as we have these restrictions on our movement, the, the virus will not spread very much. But the moment we start easing them, the virus will spread. So it's not like we didn't expect this. This was expected. And in fact, uh, uh, when we eased restrictions on the 1st of June, by the 10th of June, every province had the numbers of cases going up. So we knew this was going to happen. What is surprising is the speed with which it's been growing. Yeah. We had hoped that there would be enough prevention that would be taken up so that the easing of the lockdown would be counteracted by people wearing masks and social distancing and so on. And that's what hasn't happened to the extent that's needed. And I think that's what the president was trying to convey to people, that it's in our hands, we decide what happens. And, you know, let me give you a simple example. Mm. I went to uh, the shop uh, two days ago. When I got there, I see the queue standing there, mm. and they weren't following the rules. So I went up to the guard at the, at the front door who was letting people in. I said, you know, we're not following the rules here can you please make sure everybody follows the rules? And he said, no, he can't do that. Wow. So I said, well, if you're not going to do that, I'm letting you know that I'm writing a letter to the shop and I'm never coming back to shop here until you sort this out. So now each one of us has to take responsibility. Why should I put myself at risk going to a shop that's not willing to follow the rules? Exactly. So, exactly. you know, we have to become... The 
people who would try and encourage everybody to follow the rules. Because them not following the rules, they're putting me at risk. And that's what I, why, why should I be put at risk by them not following the rules? So I think that's where our, our, our mutual interdependence, somehow we've got to find that Ubuntu back again. We've got to bring that to the fore that, you know, I am because you are. You are safe, that's I am safe. So I think that's got to come back. We've got to find ourselves in that realm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely and utterly agree with you on that one. I mean, I, I was looking now at the numbers. I see that we up in the last 24 hours, and this was in the president's speech, actually. I, so I need to give an update in terms of the numbers. It's 12,058 new cases, bringing the total, the grand total, to 276,242 uh, uh, confirmed cases. Um, recovery is standing at 134,000, so just less than half. Um, of the cases are recoveries and then 4,079 uh, deaths in total, which is extremely tragic. But, Prof, I mean, without right now, the, the what we're looking at, generally speaking, and I think yourself as well as uh, Professor Mahdi and everyone else I've spoken to in this space says that we should stop just looking at the total number and, and in essence making ourselves feel better. What we need to be worried about at this stage is obviously the number of people who are occupying hospital beds with COVID-19, number one. Number two, how many of those people need critical care and how much space then do we have for people uh, who could be new infections who also need critical care in, 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 in turn. You know, people who are diabetic, people who are um, uh, hypertensive, people who uh, may have other underlying conditions. I mean, do we have an idea of, of what that scenario is looking like? Yes, I mean, I think firstly we need to start off with that's not strictly true that you should just disregard the number of cases. That's, uh, that's a very myopic way of looking at the world. Each thing tells us different things. Hmm. The number of new cases, the number of recoveries is very important and the number of active cases is important because that gives us some idea of the existing number of individuals that can drive the epidemic. Yeah, yeah. The segment, and you know, that number is, is an estimate. I mean, it's always been an estimate because we know that there are some people who have this infection who have no symptoms. And so we, we don't know who they are. <laughs> they don't know who they are either. Mm. So the number of cases is important. The number of uh, admissions and bed occupancy is another important indicator. And mm. then the third is deaths. So you have to look at the whole chain from cases to uh, admissions, to deaths, because all three things tell us different things, and, they, and they're all important. Sure. If you look at the admissions right now, we uh, know at a provincial level, province by province, what the bed occupancy is. They do something called a midnight count, and that's done and collated at a provincial level. So we have that information at national and at provincial level. I think the challenge has been that that information is not being made publicly available. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that that will become the case. It's being made available by some provinces. So, for example, in Gauteng, it's now made available and okay. two others. But it should be made available more broadly so that, you know, you and I, and I mean, because everybody's an epidemiologist today. <laughs> yeah, no, for I, sure. I love it. I love it. I see it's so empowering to people that they, they understand the numbers, they're calculating the numbers, they're working out the active cases, they're working out the case fatality rate. So it's very important that they must be able to work our mission rates and our occupancy rates and get some idea 
of how many people are on oxygen or not. And that's going to change. And mm. it's going to change because we're developing and are now implementing new drugs like dexamethasone. So the number of people now who will die as a result of severe immune, uh, 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 severe respiratory distress will start declining. So we need to monitor that so that we have some idea of what the impact of dexamethasone is because we, we need to, if we don't monitor it, we won't really know. Mm. It's going to be hard because you can't do a clinical trial now. We can just estimate it based on what we would expect. But you're right, we need to see the whole spectrum, each giving us important information. So, I mean, at, at this stage, because one of, I mean, I, I completely agree with you and I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, when I look at those statistics that are shared on a day-to-day basis, Prof, um, you know, bed occupancy, for example, admissions, et cetera, et cetera, those are the type of things that we're not privy to. And as the president had mentioned this evening, in some instances, we have people being turned away from hospitals. Now, I'm not thinking that hospitals are deliberately uh, turning people away because I don't know they don't feel like uh, doing their work for that particular day. The fact of the matter is, is that they find themselves in in a tough situation. Quite frankly, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm I'm thinking to myself. Let's say I had to start having breathing difficulty, or I noticed that I have an elevated uh, temperature. There's a high probability mm-hmm. that I would want to present myself to a hospital for uh, you know whatever form of medical assistance I may require. And it's a bit difficult yeah. under these circumstances if you don't know what what is this, the scheme of things. What is it looking like? Uh, am I in a position, for example, to rather isolate at home as opposed to going to a facility and taking up space, let alone look for space before I'm even able to occupy any particular space? You're absolutely right. And I think what's happening now, well, let, let's go one step back. Mm. You know, intensive care beds and high care beds they are rare in any healthcare system because they're very expensive to maintain. Yeah. And generally, we don't need a lot of them. So hospitals only have a few of them. Now, you have a situation where you've got suddenly, in a matter of one week, thousands of people needing it. So no health system can cope with that. You're not even the U.S., not, in, not even in the U.K. with the NHS, not mm-hmm. in Italy. There's no country that has already made that even, even if they've you know, had two months to prepare, that they can prepare enough beds. You can't get you know, mm. enough anesthetists overnight and enough ICU nurses overnight. That just doesn't happen. So we have to make the best of the resources we have, and we have to make the most of the limited uh, capabilities that we have, given the demand that there is. So the way to do that most effectively is to create triage. And so we spend a lot of time doing that. Mm. Every facility you go to, they will not let you in. They simply will not let you in. You have to go through triage. They will assess where, who you are, what your issue is. Are you a person under investigation for COVID? Are you a positive patient with COVID? Are you non-COVID? And then they will triage you, and based on that, they will find the spot for you. If the, that section is full then they need to refer you on to another facility because they can't cope, they can't cope. There's no point in taking someone because that's when the mortality rate starts going up is when you take too many patients and you can't cope. So the way in which that's being done is perhaps suboptimal, but it's 
it's under a system that's under huge pressure. It's occurring in a system under huge pressure because this pressure occurs very quickly. In other words, you go from, just think about it, right? Mm. A month ago, where were we? We were just, you know, we were all looking at the Western Cape and saying, oh, we feel so sorry for them. And, yeah, no, exactly. You know, thankfully, we don't have the problem. No, very true, very true. I mean, and now we're sitting with with this this particular issue that we're sitting with. I mean, Prof, we 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 can't you know not have this conversation without addressing the elephant in the room and the contribution that alcohol has made, unfortunately, to the situation. I mean, the president, uh, you know, as part of his scolding, making it absolutely clear that we've had many uh, cases then arriving, you know, uh, trauma cases arriving in our trauma units uh, because, you know, Gersh and his buddies would go out for a, or sit uh, around, have a drink, uh, probably infect each other in the process and then to make matters worse than get into our vehicles and then go crash the car or maybe end up fighting with each other and stab each other. I mean, uh, on the fourth day, um, once alcohol had been reintroduced, I had a conversation where, uh, you know, there was uh, a medical professional that was telling me of, of instances of exes being buried in people's heads, uh, people walking in with uh, knives in their guts, etc., etc. I mean, that definitely had a major role to play. And I think it's, it's, it's a good move. I mean, it's a solid move and it was well overdue the whole idea of, of bringing this to an end and um, uh, telling people that, listen, sorry, if you want to have a DOP, uh, you'll have to wait. Yeah, I think uh, it's, you know, the whole point is we're really dealing with a critical period now. We're dealing with a situation that's, uh, you know, beyond any country's capabilities to just deal with under normal circumstances. And we're talking about a period that's not going to be too long, we hope. We hope that we're really talking about the next six to eight weeks or so. So, you know, if 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 we want to do our best in terms of trying to protect mm. the healthcare system, and we want to give our healthcare workers, our doctors and nurses, every chance to save every COVID patient they can, we have to avoid blocking the system up with all these other problems. And they do block the system up. Mm. I think the evidence is quite strong now of the amount of ICU care and emergency room care that alcohol brings to the equation. So I think we, it's, in a way, you know, we could have asked nicely. We should have said, you know, can everybody, you know, deal with alcohol in a much more responsible way for the next eight weeks so that we don't end up in the situation. But the reality is that it's very hard to do that and we don't really get the results as we've tried. So I think this has to be done at some level. Otherwise, we then are basically admitting that, you know, we, we, we're willing to sacrifice, uh, we're not willing to sacrifice alcohol uh, just because, you know, it's our right, not considering all of the patients and the medical care facilities that that takes. Prof, I think this is yeah. going to be quite an impact. Um, you know, it's not going to be as, as impactful as the first time because people have stockpiled alcohol and so on. But I think we'll start seeing, even if it's a, you know, a 20% reduction in the number of uh, alcohol-related admissions, I think it would make a big difference because of the load that we are seeing. So, Prof, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't ask on this particular issue. I mean, we we ninth in the world uh, when we look at the statistics. It's it's really quite scary and quite worrisome. We've we've 
for a very long time seemingly maintained a hold on, on COVID-19. But now we're ninth in the world, um, having passed, uh, surpassed countries like Italy, uh, Spain and Iran. Simultaneously, um, the president has uh, and cabinet has extended uh, the national disaster um, to the 15th of, of August. And I mean, if you look at the 15th of August, it's little more than a month away. A lot of people, I think, would be very wrong if they thought that this is going to come to an end at any particular point in time, anytime soon. I mean, what do you see in terms of future, even if people had to start behaving from tomorrow? Uh, do you think that we are going to see an end to a lockdown, an end to this particular crisis anytime soon? Yeah, I think when we look at what the situation is and what the models have suggested, um, I think we can expect that you know we will continue increasing for another few weeks. And as KwaZulu-Natal increases its, num- its numbers, it will start driving the totals up even higher. Um, the extent to which the Eastern Cape will continue to rise, I don't think much more. So when you look at all of those combined, Mm. we really have to appreciate that this is going to continue probably for the next six to eight weeks. And then we'll start seeing the decline occur. By about October, we should be then in a situation of very low number of cases. The problem comes about then that we now have to start worrying about a second wave. So, you know, that's what all these other countries are busy grappling with. You know, China, Beijing, of course, went under lockdown again because they started the second wave. Mm. So, so we need to overcome this first wave and then we can't afford to get complacent. And then we're going to have to watch out and be very careful that we don't lay ourselves bare for a second wave to come uh, before the end of the year, uh, as has now occurred in a few countries. As you know, Singapore had another second wave come through. So, uh, I mean, I don't know how to say it because it sounds it sounds like such bad news, but this virus is here to stay. And uh, until we have a vaccine or a cure, uh, we have to learn to deal with this virus. We're going to live with this viral threat. Sure. And it might be a year, it might be three years. We don't know how long this is going to be. We can't predict that. But the difference is that several countries have been able to get quite a high level of control. They still have the problem of you know outbreaks and second waves. Mm. But we've got to try and get to that sort of position where people are really willing to take up the prevention measures and do so in a much, much more responsible way. If we do that, I think we'll be in a good position. Prof, I'm ending off on, on this question here. I mean, when it comes to testing, um, we're sitting at uh, 20 million tests. Uh, you know, just a quick rough estimation. That's about, what, uh, a third of the population. Uh, or not tests, but screening. Um, you know, screens, uh, screening conducted. Is it enough? Are we doing well enough with it? Um, uh, some of the private players in the, you know, in the space have obviously stopped their testing. Um, uh, a year of mixed up results. I actually anecdotally had a conversation with someone that I know very well uh, just last week who told me that his test results had been mixed up, initially came back positive, and then it turns out that he was actually negative, which is always problematic because somewhere someone thinks that they're negative, but they're actually positive. 
Yeah, no, you know, it's been happening uh, in the laboratories because they're all under the same pressures. Mm, mm. I mean, a laboratory, you know, that wasn't doing any of these. Prof? Prof? And so, you know, there are errors creeping in. Um, I think on the whole, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've done well in terms of increasing our testing. Our problem is that we can't get hold of enough kits. And that's where we're struggling because the whole world is trying to buy the same test kits that we are trying to buy. And so we can't get supply. Even though we're willing to pay, we've placed the orders, the suppliers can't supply because the same kits we're using, everyone else is using. So as we can get more of the supply of the kits, I think that's going to be very important for us to even raise the testing. So right now, I think we're doing around sort of between 30 and 40,000 tests per day. In fact, I think yesterday was a record high. I think nearly 50,000 or something tests. Mm. So we're going to need to be doing uh, quite a large number of tests. And we just have to hope that the suppliers will come to the party and give us more kits. And that the president's efforts to secure kits for the whole of Africa through that new form through the African Union will start enabling us to get you know, at least double our number of kits that we have available. There's a separate issue, which is about screening. And that, at this point in the epidemic, there's really no need for us to do that kind of screening anymore. And we need to be focusing now in a much more targeted way. And that's what's been happening. So the screening has been scaled back. And so we're only really doing screening where there's very high risk uh, situations and where there are contacts of people who are positive. And I think overall, mm. the, the entire strategy that the government has gone with mm. has given us, you know, the, the sort of the totality of what needs to be done while we were waiting for the surge. Now that the surge is here, the focus has to be on the medical care. It has to be, how do we get that death rate really low, how the, that case fatality rate, keeping that at the low end is very important. Prof, thank you so much for your time. All the best and hopefully we get through this, uh, you know, and, you know, on the other side and we not become, we don't become, uh, you know, some of the other countries that we're looking at and, and saying, but hang on guys, you've actually really messed up this one. And, um, you know, it's a global, not just a global, but it's a national crisis in some countries. I'm sure you know uh, which ones I'm talking about, in, you know, specifically. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we, we really don't need that situation considering that we are a developing nation. Uh, people are poor. People have underlying conditions in this country. And um, things already really were already heavy with uh, some of the, uh, you know, measures that we've had to take. Um, and we don't need any of those measures being increased again. In other words, I don't need to see us going back uh, to, say, for example, level uh, three, I mean, level four, level five. Uh, that would just not serve anyone's needs. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, uh, if I might just say, I mean, for a country that has overcome such great odds in the past, mm. who would have thought, you know, we could have defeated, you know, the, the challenges of apartheid? Look at how we're dealing with HIV now. Mm. We've been able to overcome before. We can overcome against this. We can, we can, we can, we can get ahead of this. We should it's be able just to. It's a question of you know getting ourselves together, getting united, 
and agreeing that we all want to deal with this together. I hear you. All the best to you, Prof. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. Thank Bye-bye. You. Cheers. There was uh, Professor Salim Abdul Karim. Um, he is, of course, uh, part of the Ministerial Advisory Committee, is an epidemiologist and director of the Center for AIDS program of research in South Africa. And um, I think it's, it's a very important conversation that we needed to have following the president's address.